0: My name is Brian Colbertson. I'm one of the pastors here. We're in a series uh, talking about hurry and looking at the unhurried way of Jesus. Two weeks ago, I spent time preaching and diagnosing our condition. In the condition, we gave a title called "Hurry Sickness." Hurry sickness is defined by continual rushing or feeling chronically short of time, or continually trying to attempt to do more and more and participate in more and more. Some of the symptoms of this sickness are irritability, hypersensitivity, restlessness, emotional numbness, priorities that are all out of whack. Hurry is like the thief that the Bible talks about who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Hurry comes to kill our relationships, to rob us of joy, to destroy our wisdom, our creativity, our appreciation. Name your value. Hurry sickness, but there is a cure. We looked at it in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, our mantra for this series. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry a heavy burden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. As believers, we are apprentices of Jesus. As apprentices, we take his yoke upon us. The difference is with this rabbi is that his yoke is easy. And so Jesus is giving us a yoke, this piece of equipment that we can use to model his way so that we can experience his life. So I'll start tonight with the question, how many of you remember what it is like to feel bored? That's a funny question, right? And some of you are sitting going, I don't have to remember. I feel that way right this very moment. <laughs> I know you thought it. I'll just beat you to it. But see, those in this room, and we are a younger, skewed congregation, so those in this room who were born you know, about mid 1990s and beyond cannot remember a period of time when there was not unlimited entertainment right in their front pocket. And so you young'uns, I'll talk to you right now. There was once a time you had to go to the doctor's office, and you sat in the waiting room, and you just sat there. Maybe you would pick up the Highlights magazine. Does anybody remember that one? Or if you're a little older, the Reader's Digest, Guidepost magazine for the Christian, cheesy Christians in the room. I don't know. You would go wait in line at the grocery store. You looked at the candy bars, you looked at the magazines and the tabloids, there was no phone to pull out. You got to a traffic light and you just sat there like my wife does every time she is in the car, like a psychopath doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) And so a disclaimer before I really dig into this sermon because I feel like I should cover my bases a little bit. This is not a bash the digital age sermon. Per se. Because I do love technology. Those of you who know me know that I do and it lets me as a human being, as a worker, as a pastor, accomplish a whole heck of a lot. These sermons that I do every week, I am not all that smart and don't know all that much, but the world of information is out there at my fingertips and so it allows me to compile a fairly good sermon by reading what other people write and studying and reading commentaries and so forth. This week, Siri, You iPhone users, I'm taking Emory to school early in the morning, I'm tired, had my first cup of coffee, but was ready for a second, and I had heard somebody say, well, you can just tell Siri to order the coffee for you, and it'll be ready when you get to Starbucks. So I go, hey, Siri, order, Uh, sorry, not now, hey, Siri, order Starbucks. And I got the Starbucks by my daughter's school and there it was. Apparently I had a Danish included in that order and I was trying to intermittent fast and it totally screwed that up, but I had to eat the Danish because it was there. But I do love technology and it does allow me to do so much and I think it makes me a lot more productive, but I have to admit that I have an addiction to the device dating all the way back to the Crackberry. How many of you remember the Crackberry? Yeah, I used to, I was a loan officer, and I would sit in loan closings. This was early on in the technology stage, and they'd be doing the closing. I'd be over there, you know, sending emails with my Crackberry, and they're like, are you playing a video game right now? I'm like, no, just just working, working for you right here, right now. I've had to admit the addiction. Odds are the vast majority of you here have a similar addiction. And if you think you don't, I challenge you to prove it. Real simple, give up your phone for a week. Give up the internet for a week. I see a lot of heads shaking. No. How about a day? How about an hour? Anybody do the homework that Nicole assigned last week to give up your phone for the Sabbath or at least turn it off? Did you, Nicole? Preacher leading the way. Thank you. (laughs) Do we ever, though, stop to think, all this digital noise, what's it doing to our souls? How much has it sped us up and added to our hurry sickness? That maybe all this distraction, we've lost something. By losing boredom, we've lost all those moments for potential, for creativity, for observing what's happening around us. Or most importantly, for drawing our minds to God. See, the Bible says God's voice is a whisper, not a shout. And so it's hard to hear God's voice if it has to cut through all the other noise that we place in our lives. In fact, it's hard to even hear our own voice, to feel our feelings and our emotions. I mean, y'all know, get a hint of boredom, what do you do? Uh, Pull out the phone, check the news, what's happening? Uh, Trump said that, interesting. And crush some candy for a while. And you look at the weather, it looks like a great week. And then, ugh, these people are so annoying on my Facebook. I don't know why I'm friends with them as I continue to look at my newsfeed. And maybe, just maybe, you get into some deep thought for a moment and it's ding, time to be real, everybody. <laughs> if you don't know what be real is, ask the really young kids in the room, they'll tell you what be real is. Seventy-seven percent of young adults in a survey said, when nothing is occupying my time, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. Linda Stone, she's a Microsoft researcher. She says, continuous partial attention is our new norm. Sounds about right. Studies have been done recently that the attention span of the regular human being in the year 2000 before the digital revolution, which was really about 05, 06, 07, the average attention span for us was 12 seconds. Now we didn't have a lot of wiggle room to begin with, right? 12 seconds. Now we are down to eight seconds. To put that in perspective, a goldfish has nine seconds of attention. Nicola Carr, he has a book called The Shallows, and it's dated. This is from you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, so the language, he calls it the net, and we don't really say that anymore, but, but you'll get the gist. He says, What the net is doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words. Now I zip along on the surface like a guy on a jet ski. Slot machines. Any fans, don't raise your hands. (laughs) I like them too. It's okay. Slot machines, if you don't know this, make more money than the film industry and baseball combined. Those little slot machines, one armed bandits. Even though they make most of their money, only taking a quarter at a time. Why? Because slot machines are addictive. And all those quarters, as insignificant as they feel in the moment, they add up over time. It's the same way with this little slot machine that we carry in our pockets that have us all hooked I mean they only take small moments from us and it's no big deal just a little here a text there scroll through Instagram there a quick scan of the email before the sleep is even out of my eyes in the morning read this this week the average smartphone user touches their phone listen to this 2,600 times per day and you may be going no 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 well they're just counting one Two, three. So you count up all the times you touch your phone every day, 2,600 times. You do that through 76 different sessions, and that adds up to 2.6 hours. That is the average person, not us really addicted people in the room. So I did some math 2.6 hours times seven days a week times 52 weeks per year. That's a thousand plus hours that I could do a whole lot better with. And to put that into perspective, the average American who works 40 hours a week, five days a week, works 2,000 hours. So you're working 2,000 hours and you're giving 1,000 hours to the little slot machine in your pocket. And we haven't even talked about your TVs at home that you spend 2,700 hours on every night. And we haven't talked about the computer that you sit in front of at work when you're supposed to be working, but you're on Facebook and Amazon or whatever. Thing is, we're no longer bored. We've got constant information, constant entertainment. But at what cost? What have we lost? Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. They promise to fulfill our hunger for more information, for more inspiration, for more entertainment. And each of those platforms, and there's so many more, they each have their own flavor. But the driver behind all of their business models is the algorithm. You've heard this before, right? The algorithm. It's the algorithm, this computer model, that when you go to these social media sites, determine what it is that you see. And they do that in order to keep your attention. These algorithms are designed to keep your attention and to keep you on that platform, And the more it holds your attention, the more you engage. And the more you engage, the more the algorithm learns about you. And the better it becomes at holding your attention. More attention, more engagement, the more valuable their platform becomes to their advertisers. The more income that it provides to their shareholders. And that's the purpose of these apps, if you don't know that. And so the Wall Street Journal did a study recently. They set up a bunch of fake, uh, I think it was TikTok accounts. And so they just created these personas in these fake accounts. And so one would be, you know, a sports enthusiast. And one would be somebody that, you know, is lusting after women. And one was uh, somebody suffering from depression. It was just a fake account. They just created this um, fake person that had depression. And so they would go on TikTok. They went for the very first time and they went on tiktok within 36 minutes of screen time on tiktok tiktok was able to recognize the person's inclinations and within minutes 93 percent of the content that was being served up by tiktok to this account was related to depression and sadness and they're not, I'm not beating up on TikTok. This is the model for every social media, especially the ones with the stories that we constantly flip through. In social media, they're not doing this to help you heal or to become a better person. But they are more than happy to figure out exactly how you are broken and what content our broken selves finds irresistible. And so we've gone into these devices and these apps And we've given them perverse intimacy into our hearts and into our lives. To the point we spend more time tapping on screens than we do talking to friends. Allowing these algorithms to know us better than the people who actually love us. All right, that's the end of my rant. But it needed to be out there. Because this is what Paul says in Ephesians, and it applies to us. He says, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. It's MLK Day on Monday of this week, and I saw a quote from him. He says, We must use our time creatively in the knowledge that time is always ripe to do right. It's hard to use our time to do right, to be wise. To make the most of every opportunity if we are constantly distracted. We said two weeks ago, our spiritual life, that's a very churchy word, but we can break it down real simply. Our spiritual life is to love God and to love other people. And within that, we have to learn to love ourselves so we can both love God and love other people. That is our spiritual life. But if we can't pay attention any longer than a goldfish, how do we talk to God? How do we pray to God? How do we read God's written word? If every time I get a hint of boredom, I reach for this handheld dopamine dispenser, how do I ever manage to have any deep or meaningful thoughts? If I'm never present in the moment because I'm just worried about getting back to that phone, how can I ever let those people around me know they are important and I want to be with them? Is there a way, is there a practice of Jesus that could help? Yeah, it's actually several. That's what we're doing in this series. We're going through the different practices of Jesus that can help. Last week, Nicole talked about Sabbathing, about taking a day if you can, and resting and pausing. It's this rhythm of rest and work, a day set aside to Shabbat, to stop And if it's not a day, a couple of hours. We're going to break that down on an even more micro scale this week. I want to look at another practice that is woven into the life and the way of Jesus. And that is simply silence and solitude. And so we're going to look at the end of Matthew chapter 3. This comes right after the Christmas story. It's weird how Matthew breaks down his gospel. But you've got the Christmas story for two and a half chapters and then we fast forward to 30 years later. And so we're at that fast forward 30 years later part of Jesus's life. We haven't seen Jesus since he's a baby. Boom, here he is. And the chapter starts with this guy, JB, I call him John the Baptist. And he is preaching, saying, repent, the end is near. Turn from your sins. And John looks up and he sees Jesus. And you know the famous line: behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus comes to John, and he says, "'Cause I'm gonna need you to baptize me." And John says, no way, you're Jesus, you're the Messiah. It is you who should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, we must carry out all that God requires. And he requires that you baptize me. And so John the Baptist has the honor of baptizing Jesus. And then we read this, verse uh, 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's always been one of my favorite moments in Scripture because it is a time in Scripture. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit. One place at one beautiful time. But this also becomes the launch pad then that now begins the ministry of Jesus. And so we turn the page to chapter 4 and it begins like this, then You've heard me teach before, you know, when you see the word then, it means right after all this stuff happened, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, we'll worry about what he said later. But well, what I want to point out here is what is the first thing Jesus did after his baptism? It says he was led by the Spirit, and he heads out to the desert. And I know in our heads we're thinking, you know, desert, sand, dry, barren, sun beating down, no water. And maybe it is that, but the actual Greek word here is iremos, eremos, E-R-E-M-O-S, eremos. And we see that Greek word in Scripture, it can certainly mean a desert, can mean a wilderness place, can mean a deserted place, a solitary place, a lonely place, or the one I like the most this week is the quiet place. So why immediately following Jesus' baptism, and right before he begins to go into ministry, which is going to be an incredibly hectic, busy time, is Jesus led into the quiet place, to the wilderness, where he is alone for 40 days of silence and solitude. Fasting and praying. Of course, now Satan eventually shows up on the scene, and I know most of us think, I always have, well, isn't that just like Satan? Shows up when we're at our absolutely weakest because we're just told Jesus was hungry. But what if we look at this from a different way? What if the Eremos is not a place of weakness out there in the desert, but that after a month and a half alone, With only his thoughts, praying and fasting, talking to God, listening to God, reciting God's word. And that silence and solitude is what gave Jesus the strength then to take on Satan. It was all preparation. And so Jesus goes to the desert. Jesus has just learned his identity. He is the son of God. That has got to be a head trip, like... Wow, big explosion. And so he needed some time to process away from the noise, away from the distraction, time to meditate and to reflect, to battle those inner voices. Jesus is fully God, but he's fully human. He's got those same inner voices that we had. And so he had to explore his potential to be prideful. He had to explore his potential to want to take the easy way out. But the result was Jesus comes out of the desert, he overcomes Satan, and now he has a new type of clarity, in touch with God, in touch with himself, and now he is ready to begin his ministry as the Messiah. And so he begins that, if we look over into Mark chapter 1, there we read about Jesus' first day on the job. And it is a marathon of a day. It is busy. Says he's up early. He's out teaching in the synagogue. He heals Peter's mother in law. Then he's up late healing the sick. He is casting out demons. Sound like a busy day? This is a busy day. Verse 35 says, Very early the next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. Guess what word that is again? Eremos, where he prayed. After a long day, what is it that we usually think we need the next day? To get up early the next morning so we can go out somewhere and pray and be with God for a few hours? I don't know. I want to sleep in. I want to spend the morning in my pajamas. I want to go to Instagram and go to the stories and just spend mindless hours of watching funny videos and people playing guitars and surfing and boating and all the stuff the algorithm puts in my newsfeed. Jesus went to a quiet place, 40 days and 40 nights. He comes back for one day of busy activity, and what does he do the very next day? Heads right back out early in the morning to a quiet place to pray. You see a trend? Mark chapter 6. Jesus now has disciples. These apprentices that are learning to be like Jesus, to model his way. And they have a long couple days of doing kingdom work. In verse 31, though, we're told then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. And so he said to them, before we get to that, you ever felt like that? A day where you did not even feel like you had a chance to eat you were so busy. You were so hurried. There was no time to eat. That was us last night at music walk. It was like, what, 10 o'clock at night. Finally, Jeff Herman got me a pizza. I got a chance to eat something. I eat like way too many pizzas. That's not healthy. That's why you shouldn't do that. But he says, he said to them, these busy disciples that had no time to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to the Aramos, a quiet place, and get some rest. Jesus doesn't say to us, what you need is some more time on social media so you can rest. What you need is some more time to rewatch Breaking Bad for the third time through the entire series. That's not rest. You need quiet time, alone, in solitude with me. And so we're told in verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat to the Ramos, to a solitary place. And any people in the room trying to convince your other half that you need a boat in your household, just so you know, it's biblical. Jesus got them in a boat so they could go take a rest. You can use that. That's on me. How many remember reading Thoreau when you were maybe in high school or college? How many liked it? A few. I had mixed feelings, actually, Bruce, on it. I was kind of like, I hated it when the teacher read it in high school, but I'm of the age, the Dead Poet Society came out when I was in that kind of teenage years, and all of a sudden, they're reading this poetry, and I'm like, that stuff is cool, man. I started memorizing it. If you don't know, on Walden Pond, uh, he wrote that poem or that story when he was spending two years out in the woods alone, Away from the noise, away from the distraction. He had cut it all out. And so as he's out there alone, he wrote these words. This is from in Walden Pond. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. I wanted to live deep, one of my favorite lines, and suck all the marrow out of life. To front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And not when I came to die, Discovered that I had not lived. And that's the greatest tragedy of all, right? To die only to discover that we had never lived. What a shame, especially as Christians. To be so busy, so hurried, so mind-numbingly distracted that we go through life missing all that God places before us and has to offer in this life. Now, are we the first generation to struggle with finding a quiet time because of our phones and because of our technology? Certainly not. I want to go back to the story I was reading from Mark's gospel. Jesus and his disciples, they got in the boat, they were going to get away so that they could go rest. But listen to what it says next, verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. I love the realism in this story because there are times when we need quiet time and we need to be alone with Jesus. But sometimes life happens. Emergencies happen, kids happen an opportunity to love others in a way maybe we will never have again. And so Jesus, knowing that he needs the rest and the time away, he still stops and he teaches. And this is where the 5,000 loaves out of five fish or five loaves and two fish occurs. This beautiful miracle and great teaching. And they're on the mountainside. But after he stops, then we go to verse 45. It says, after all of this, immediately... Immediately after this interruption, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. You see what happened there? Jesus to the disciples, I'm going to need you to go away for a minute because I need to be alone. In verse 46, after leaving them, after the disciples cruise away, he goes up to the mountainside to pray, to be alone with God. One more for you. And there's a ton of these in scripture. So we could have did this all night, but I want to kind of hit all the gospels if I can. Luke chapter five. And there are the most of these situations in Luke, but chapter five, verse 15, it says, uh, despite Jesus's instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. He's at the peak of his fame and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew To the wilderness, the Eremos, for prayer. The word often is so key. Jesus often withdrew to the quiet place. Often means it was a habit, that it was frequent, that it was an integral part of his way. You see, when we read all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the busier, the more famous, and the more demand that came upon Jesus the more he actually withdrew to a quiet place to be with his father. I mean, for me, too often I'm just the opposite. The busier I get, the more I tend to just sat settle for the cheap distractions that are not real rest. And so external noise we've been talking about are phones, social media, TV, music, whatever it is. And those external distractions, if we put in some work, they're relatively easy to quiet. I mean, it's gonna take some discipline. You're gonna to have to pray for some self-control if you're addicted like me, but really it's just hit the off button. Turn off your phone, delete the app, power down Fox News or CNN, go for a walk, go on a spiritual retreat, leave everything behind or simply get up 15 minutes earlier in the morning and go sit and start your day with 15 minutes of solitude and silence. It's hard, but it's doable, the external noise. But what about the other noise? The internal noise, the noise up here. Why do we have this urge to grab our phones when we are bored? Why do I need to always have the TV on when I'm at home, whether or not I'm watching it? Why do I always have to listen to a podcast when I'm driving? Why do I have to have music on when I'm working out? Could it be that I'm using those external noises to drown out the internal noise that I just don't want to listen to? That running commentary in my head, replaying that fight I just had with a coworker? beating myself up over another dumb decision, that voice of worry, that anxiety that is building, or role-playing all the hypothetical situations and catastrophizing, or fuming. I spend a lot of time fuming over being hurt, and admittedly, sometimes even dreaming about revenge, or it's the time daydreaming of a fantasy life, that next great vacation that's going to change everything. Richer, being prettier, six-pack abs, or whatever it is that we're dreaming about. So we can turn off the external noise, hit the off switch, put the phone away. It's possible, it's doable, but that internal noise, it doesn't have an off switch. And so to deal with this, we have to learn. We have to practice quieting the noise. And so let's go back to the desert with Jesus, that first Ramos after his baptism. Jesus in the desert, yes, he quieted the external noise. He was away in the wilderness. There was no noise. There was no outside noise. But he brought with him the inside noise, that voice in his head. And so I like to imagine this. Maybe it was a devil with the pitchfork in his hand who showed up there to Jesus to tempt him give him all these temptations. I don't know. Maybe that's how it was. It was Satan in the flesh that showed up. That's how we all tend to generally read this. But what if it was those words, instead of coming from Satan externally, Satan was using the inner noise within Jesus to try to chip away at Jesus's belief and resolve. Listen to the words of Satan now that he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Could that not be Jesus kind of working through some stuff? If I'm really God's son, man, why am I out here starving like this? Why am I so poor? I mean, I'm the king of kings. Don't I deserve better than this? Verse six, if you are the son of God, jump off this cliff. For scripture says God's angels will protect you. Could that not be the internal voice of Jesus twisting and questioning and having those negative thoughts just like you and I have? Man, why don't I just show people who I am? I am God's son. I am the great I am. I am the Messiah. Wouldn't that be so much easier than a cross? Verse 8, Satan says, look at all the kingdom of the world. I will give it all to you if you kneel down and worship me. It's Jesus again working through it. Isn't there a shortcut? Do I really need to be abandoned and betrayed and arrested and murdered to accomplish God's purpose? But in the silence and in the solitude of the desert, Jesus not only quiets the external outside noise, but he has learned to deal with the internal noise that the accuser creates. And so as he wrestles, as he listens, he begins to quiet that noise. He says, scripture says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He has dealt with that noise. Scripture says, you must not test the Lord your God, and he has now dealt with that noise. Scripture says, you must worship God and serve him only, and that deals with so much noise in our lives. We have two options. We can neglect the practice of silence and solitude, and we can continue right down the rat race of hurry, and then we can deal with the emotional and spiritual consequences of unhealth that come along with it. Or option B, we can follow the ways of Jesus. We can adopt his lifestyle, we can weave his unhurried way into the fabric of our lives. If all you do tonight is come here and you listen to me and you say, man, that was such a great sermon. What a great idea. Amen, 100%. But you never put any of this into practice. I'm going to be blunt. What's, what's even the point of this? Because this has just become more external noise in your life to avoid the internal noise. This just becomes another tool that Satan is using to keep you feeling distant from God, keep you feeling that undercurrent of anxiety, feeling like you have no energy left for the people you love, easily triggered, constantly restless. But maybe tonight, you're like I've been for the last several weeks. You're ready for option B, to find your Eremos, Whether it's in your house, under a tree outside... And if you ever want to come in here, I use that room right over there. That's the baby nursing room. There's some comfortable chairs. You shut the door. You can get 10 minutes of quiet pretty easy. And you just go in there and you sit. I don't know how long, five minutes, 15 minutes, two hours. However long it takes for you to decompress from all the notifications, from the nonstop stimulation, from the traffic, the chaos, and the to-do list, and just focus your thoughts on God on your emotions to slow down so you can fool the full spectrum the wonder and the gratitude and the contentment the joy and the anger and the hurt feelings and the insecurity and the fear and the coping mechanisms in your life sit quietly and face the good and the bad and the ugly that is in your heart your worry your hopes your desire for more God, your desire for less God. What would happen in my marriage to my wife, Karen, if we never spent any alone time together? If we never had private time to talk, to say the things that we wouldn't say to anybody else, to share our deepest and darkest secrets, or to just sit there with nothing but enjoying each other's company, what would happen to our marriage? Well, it would suffer It would probably die, to be honest, on the vine. Our relationship with God is no different than any other relationship that we have. It takes time together, alone. Without the noise, without the distractions, just you and God alone. And so I'm going to close with this. Mother Teresa A reporter, and I don't know who the reporter was. One report I read said it was Dan Rather, but I couldn't confirm or deny that. But the reporter asked Mother Teresa what she said when she prayed. And Mother Teresa answered, saying, Well, I don't say much. I mostly listen. The reporter then asked, So what does God say to you? Mother Teresa paused, and she answered, Well, he doesn't say much. He mostly listens. Spending time with God just in His presence. And so I would be remiss tonight if we didn't just close by doing that. I'm not going to make it an extremely long period of time because maybe this is a new practice for you. But I just want to give you four minutes of quiet time. Time to sit in the presence of God. You can talk to God, you can listen to His voice can sort through some of the noise in your head. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes, and we're going to have a solid four minutes of quiet time. Father God, we pray now in this moment. Just thank you for this moment of silence and solitude in your presence. God, I know for some here right now, that was easy and just a great way to connect with you and to hear your voice and to speak with their father. And I know God, some that was incredibly difficult and felt like the longest four minutes of their life. God, I just pray in this moment for the the noise that we heard coming from outside this room, from our children's ministry and the reminder of how beautiful they are and how they're the future of your church. God, I pray for this body that as we go through this series with two weeks left and a society just filled with hurry and rush to a point that it's an epidemic, that it's a sickness and maybe we as Christians lead the way to show that there is a different way. There is a better way. It's your way. And so we learn to rest and we learn to Sabbath. We learn to take silence and solitude, not as a punishment, but a way to recharge, to make our connection closer with you. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus and for the grace and the mercy it bestows upon our lives. God, allow us to use that freedom now to just live for you in a way that an unhurried people can live. God, we thank you and we love you. We're going to stand now and praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand?